Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode of my mini-series on South Africa. And as promised, I'm taking us to Elgin. Elgin is this beautiful, cool climate wine region with diverse terroir, biodiversity. It produces amazing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It's accessible from Cape Town, so you can easily get there for a day trip or a weekend getaway. And I am talking with Andrus Berger, the winemaker of Paul Kluver. And as Paul Kluver is the pioneer of this wine region, who better than to discuss with them? So there's going to be a big focus on Pinot Noir. So we'll be talking about the importance of oak usage, how to bring out the grape's natural characteristics, how to not overpower, walking through the process of making the very best Pinot Noir from harvest through to bottling. Of course, you will know all about this wine region, Elgin, by the end of it. And there's so much to know about the conservation initiatives of this winery. Paul himself is an absolute superhero. So you will find out about this very incredible man. And I'm sure you will be diving to get yourself a bottle of Chardonnay or Pinot from this winery. So enough of this introduction, I am going to go over to the chat with Andrus now. So Andrus, I want you to tell me a little bit more details and everybody listening, how you personally ended up working at Paul Cleaver, because it's been a few years now, hasn't it? Yes, it's just completed <laughs> the 27th vintage year. Yes. Um, so I studied enology and viticulture at the University of Stellenbosch and started making wine at the winery called Niederberg. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Paul Kluver Wines was in a joint venture with, um, which was then Stellenbosch Farmers Winery, which owned uh, Niederberg, which was until recently Distel, which is now bought by Heineken. Oh God, that um, was a whole load of that. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, but, you know, I was a winemaker at Niederberg and the grapes from this property went there. Mm, okay. It also happens that I met my wife when I, like this part. when I was studying in allergy and viticulture. Mm-hmm. You know, so Inga and I got married in 1995, you know, when I was a winemaker at Niederberg. Mm-hmm. And then one day my father-in-law came to me and he said to me, does the grapes from a cool climate area which is totally different to Paul, where Niederberg was situated. Uh-huh. You know, and I said, well, at that stage, you know, Niederberg was a very big winery. It was very corporate. And obviously, I said, no, you know, if you want to make better wine, you've got to do it yourself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, in 1996, we started the building of the cellar. And my father-in-law approached me and asked me whether I would be interested in coming to make the wine here on the property. And and the rest is, is as they say, is a bit of history, you know. Um, <laughs> so I joined the business in end of 96 for the completion of the winery. And then in 1997 was the first vintage, you know, that we made here on the property. And this is interesting because I went around with your father-in-law, the Dr. Paul Cleaver, who we'll touch on. I mean, he is a force to be reckoned with. He's amazing. He was telling me, I think, that 
you originally planted Bordeaux varieties here in Elgin, where Elgin, of course, is now famous for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but you were kind of the first people there, and but it was all different plantings. Did I remember that correctly? That's correct. Yeah, we were the you know we were the first to plant commercial vineyards in the valley. There was a couple of experimental vineyards, um, but we were the first to plant you know vineyards on a commercial scale. And mm. you know the first vineyards that was planted was Chardonnay, Riesling, and and Gewürztraminer. Mm-hmm, which was mm-hmm. then followed by Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, and Cabernet Sauvignon. And then later on, we also planted Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and even Shiraz. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, um, one of the things of being a pioneer is we had to try it. You know, we had to try yeah, everything yeah, yeah, yeah. because, you know, it was a total unknown. And, yeah. you know, if we look at climate data and things like that, we sort of in between Burgundy and Bordeaux. And the only difference was, you know, um, because it's so cool and the later it gets in the season here, the colder it gets. So the Cabernet mm. never fully, you know, sort of only in very great, only in warm vintages did the Cab and the, and the Merlot and the, and the Cab Frank and even the Shiraz ripen properly. Yeah, you know, the yeah. wines always had you know, austerity to it, you know, which is which the Americans called thin and weedy, you know, sort of was too herbal <laughs> it was yeah. too herbal and green for them. Yeah. So in the in the late nineties, early two thousands, mm. you know, in South Africa the trend was your flagship wine is a blend. You know, um Okay, and, I didn't realise. Okay. Yeah, it was sort of a trend, you know, the, everybody's flagship wine is a blend. And we thought um we also going to make a blend, and, and we went as far because I worked at Chateau Margaux, and we even got Paul Pontalia from Chateau Margaux to come out and taste with us. Yes, I mean this is the that's what I wanted to touch on. I love that, but we'll get to that in a second. So yes, yeah, okay. so he comes yeah. out and tastes your blend. What was your blend? He, well, we we was we're thinking of making a blend, so he okay. tasted all the individual components. You know, the cabs and the Merlot and the Cab Frank and the stuff. You know. And he would, his response was, this is okay. You know, and then um, <laughs> our response is, listen, you know, we don't just want to be okay. We want to be amazing. You know? And um, <laughs> my brother-in-law just read the book, Good to Great, you know, and he was quoting the author and said, no, we want to be great. And, we, and Paul Pontellier's response was, young man, you have to walk before you can run. Very wise. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know, you guys also make Pinot Noir, so let's just taste the Pinot Noir, you know, just Let's give our palate a rest and taste a bit of Pinot, you know, from mm-hmm. water varieties. And after the second sample or barrel, you know, he was like, wow, this is something great. You know, um, mm-hmm. And and my response was, you know, you're not qualified. You're from Bordeaux. You're from Bordeaux. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know about Pinot Noir. Yeah. Uh. And, he, and his reply was, you know, my wife is from Paris. She loves Burgundy. And she, you know, so at night, you know, in the evenings we drink Burgundy at home. Uh-huh. And he said, well, this is, you know, here you're onto something. And it was literally the very next year we stopped making, you know, any, all the other varieties and focused only on Pinot Noir. And I think it's a great thing because with, the, with our climate, you know, in a year like, in a, in a vintage like this vintage, Bordeaux varieties is a disaster. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. you just, just couldn't ripen them. Yes. And, and for us, that's a great thing, you know, that we, you know, it gives us focus. And slowly but surely, Algen is already established as the region for Chardonnay in South Africa. And, 
and also now Pinot Noir. You know, if you talk Elgin, you think Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So how did it get there? Because you were the, you said you were the pioneers. From that moment on, did you just plant a lot more Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and then the reputation has preceded it? You know, how is it so famous now for Pinot Noir and Chard? I think, you know, it, it, it's firstly, it started with us focusing on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, you know, making that the business mm-hmm, focus. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need more role players in the industry or the region to do that. And fortunately, there's a lot of well-known winemakers, you know, the likes of Neil Ellis, um, Giles Webb at the Lima, coming mm-hmm. and sourcing grapes from the valley. You know, it, it went so far okay, that the yeah. Lima actually acquired a property in the valley ah, okay. and then also Richard Kershaw coming into the valley to focus on Chardonnay so you know it started with us focusing on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and then the other role players in the valley or people coming and sourcing you know Chardonnay from this valley you know um, that's partly also assisted in driving that focus and you mentioned that actually, if you were going to compare Elgin, the region, it's somewhere between Burgundy and Bordeaux, hence why you were trying to actually plant a whole variety of different cultivars and, and grape varieties. Yes. How would you describe to somebody who has no idea where Elgin is in South Africa and has no idea of the terroir and the climate? How would you let somebody know more about the region? Okay, so Elgin is literally an hour east, slightly southeast of Cape Town. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that is unique about the Elgin Valley is that we're on an inland plateau, but only about 15 miles, well, our property is only about 15 miles from the ocean. Mm-hmm. So we're on an elevated plateau. And the other interesting thing is that we are totally surrounded by mountains. It is incredible. Mm. You've got to drive over a mountain pass to get to the valley and also exit the valley. So the total yeah. valley is surrounded by mountains. Mm-hmm. Especially in summer, the most persistent wind in summer in the Western Cape is actually the southeaster. And the southeaster blows or brings in moist, cool air from off the Atlantic Ocean. And mm-hmm. then actually, you know, as it hits the mountains and rises, it condensates because you know, the higher you go, the cooler it becomes. Yeah. And then we get this cloud cover over the valley. So what you'll find is that in Elgin, it'll be a cloudy, overcast day. You drive to Somerset West, which is 25 minutes driving. Mm-hmm. In Stellenbosch, just for everybody. Or Stellenbosch. Mm-hmm. You know, there won't be a cloud in, in, in the sky. You know, it will be... <laughs> You know, it will be a, you know, moderately warm day, but whereas uh-huh, in Elgin, uh-huh. it's cool. You know, you know, I found temperatures in excess of 10 degrees difference between midday temperatures in Stellenbosch versus Elgin. You know? Oh, my um, God. Yeah. And the wow. other advantage is mostly, you know, coastal winds goes and dies down in the evening, you know, and what happens then, then the, the, the sky clears again. And the net effect, because we're on an elevated plateau, is that we get big diurnal differences. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what we have is moderate day temperatures and cold nights. And that's yeah. always great for flavor and color development. And that makes, makes it quite unique. You know? And then um, from a soil p- perspective, you know, South Africa's got some of the oldest viticultural soils in the world. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Meaning it's really, it's mineral rich, but nutrient poor. Mm-hmm. So what we have is we've got to do a lot of, we actually 
do a lot of regenerative farming. We don't till the soil. We plant with no tilling. So we, we've got practices in place to actually increase the organic matter and, uh, through planting special cover crops. We, we don't plant mono cover crops. We plant mixtures, you know, and things. Mm-hmm. And also we plant nitrogen fixers so that we, we don't have to use artificial nutrients. So there's a lot of things that like that, what we do. But the advantage to having a nutrient-poor soil is that we don't get excessive growth. What we have is we've got, you know, we have natural lower yields, but we have much more balanced growth in the minutes, mm-hmm. which is an advantage. So it's sounding rather ideal for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why your wine stays so delicious. Question on the yes. nitrogen fixers, just because I know, like, my, my head goes, hmm, well, what is a good nitrogen fixer? I think other people listening might might be asking well, the same thing. That's things like fet medics and uh, clovers. So clovers, I've heard of that. And what's the first thing you said? Uh, fetch and uh, medic. Fetch is a type of plant. Medics as well. Yeah, so they're all plants. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, so when you plant um, cover crops, you want to plant a cereal because that gives you volume and, and fiber. Okay, um, mm-hmm. And then you want to plant a nitrogen fixer because that fixes nitrogen in the soil. And the other thing that we plant is we plant a mixture with root vegetables like turnips or um, Japanese radishes. Because they they actually then break the soil. Wow, okay. That makes sense. So then you're aerating, right? Yeah, exactly. And then also none of these gets harvested. They just are you know either rolled or mowed and all that material um organic material stays in the vineyard oh so no one gets the turnips <laughs> no but the nobody turnips. gets the turnips or the radishes no no it, it, because <laughs> what is amazing to see is where they've died all the nutrients that they actually goes back into the soil mm-hmm. and it's amazing to mm-hmm. see the mycorrhiza growing in the soil you know, because what you want is you want a living soil. You want to have a lot of, of organisms. And yep. that's what you get by doing that. Love that. That's so interesting. Well, we're going to talk about... No, we're going to... Do you know what? We're going to do it now. Um, so you yeah. mentioned all these different regenerative farming techniques. Paul Kluver, the winery, is known for all the conservation initiatives. And so when Dr. Paul Kluver himself took me out and how... Gosh, how old is he now? Well, how uh, he, young is he now? <laughs> he, he's, he's a very young 81. He'll be 82 he, this year. Yeah, for, and sprightly still. So he took me in one of your like Jeeps out into the middle of the farm. We went up near some mountains and he like jumps out and he's marching along on this kind of, you know, almost like trekking path and showing me things. I was like, gosh, I've never seen an 81 year old move in the way that he does. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. He still walks about 10 miles every day. 10 miles. Oh my gosh. And what's it like working with him? And what's it been like? Because he has actually received a lot of recognition hasn't he for his conservation uh, initiatives yes i mean earlier this year he got a lifetime uh, achievement award from the you know world wildlife foundation for all mm. the conservation work that he's done in, in in south africa he's won the green personality from drinks business a, a couple of years ago so he's he's been very very instrumental in a lot of the conservation efforts on the property you know it's an honor to work with somebody like that i can imagine he's not only achieved a lot in the medical field because he's actually a, a neurosurgery yes, you know, he's, 
And but then you know he's also achieved a lot in agricultural business. Um, received you know a honorary doctorate from the University of Stellenbosch for his contribution to agriculture. But then on the con- conservation side, he's actually just lucky as a head of his peers, you know, of what they do, and he's always got the the greatest vision of things, you know. So he's he's a visionary leader, you know, in that sense. And how much land do you have? So so I'll give it to you in acres because you guys work in acres. Yeah, acres is fine, yeah. but you know, okay. everyone can so convert. So we, fine. We, the property is is um, just under two and a half thousand hectares, which is about five thousand acres, and um, but more than a thousand hectares, so more than two thousand acres is in conservation. Yeah, that's the point, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's and insane. you know, yeah. so it includes mountain, but you know, what is really interesting is that a lot of farmland encroaches onto mountainous areas, but there's very little transition zones that's in conservation. So that's the zones between the mountain and farmland. Mm. On our property, we've got a large part, um, probably about three, four hundred hectares of transitional land that is in conservation. And that, that is re- really special. Honestly, it's an amazing place. And anybody, this is what was so cool, and I'm like, I'm coming back to you guys. Is You're more you than welcome. Are- Thank you. You've allowed part of your land for people to do this kind of special hike, but it's not a normal hike. It's like glamping, but glamping <laughs> hike, right? It's like three or four days and people just walk constantly, but then they stay in luxury properties and eat really nice food, right? It's something like this. Yes. It's, Does it's it have called, a name? Yes, it's called slackpacking. You know, it's the yes, slapbacking, yes. Yeah, yes, it's yes. the it's the Green Mountain route. So it's basically in the the mountain behind our property is called you know in Afrikaans, which it's called the Groenlandberg. You know, which basically okay. it's the the Greenland mountain. You know, if you translate mm-hmm, it directly. Mm-hmm. So it's basically there's a conservancy, and um, so they basically walk around the mountain, and it's and with a nature conservation guide. So you only have a, have to have a day pack with you. You start on the other side of the mountain and you walk through the conservation area for three mm-hmm. days. And obviously you stop for a wine tasting and a lunch at our restaurant. Which is delicious. Which is so delicious. The food was so, so, so good. Anyway, carry on. Super. <laughs> so you basically stay in the same guest house, you know, in a luxury guest house for, th- you know, the same time. But you walk around and you see the difference, you know, because... One thing that is amazing about the Western Cape, you know, in the area that we live in, in the, you know, this area, this is the area that with the most diverse plant species in the world. You know, um, of course, yeah. In a square kilometer, you can find more than a thousand different plant species, but they also change. So, on the top of the mountain, you will have a total different um, group of of plants than lower lying, you know, areas. So it's actually mm. fascinating walking with somebody that's really knowledgeable and they can tell you all the differences of the different plants. So it's, oh, it's amazing, honestly. you know, and yes. also to see the diversity is amazing. It's on my list, it is. And then also, I didn't, like, because I was only there for a few hours, are you still doing music in the forest? Well, COVID sort of stopped that a little nah. bit. It's, 
the, plan, the plans are that we'll start again. It's just a question of when, okay. when and we need to spend a bit of money on the amphitheater, you know, so get it back to the standard. And yeah, but that's the plan. But it's amazing. You have that amphitheater in the forest. That's another thing for everyone who is coming down. Like these are the sort of things that you, you've done or you can do. So there's the walks, there's the hikes, there's the beautiful wine, the restaurant. And it's cute in the restaurant. There's like a little library area for reading as well. And you can buy books. It's oh, it just, it's everything about it. It's a beautiful place. Ah, and am I right in remembering? So not only is Dr. Paul Kluver a neuroscientist, he's set up this winery, he's doing all his conservation efforts, but also he puts his hand to carpentry. Like I was sat at a wooden table that he had carved and made, right? Yes, yes. He, yes. You know, sort of, <laughs> his hobby yeah. is making tables and stuff. You know, you know, yes, so, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, oh. He can't sit still. So, you know, he always has to have something to keep him busy. It's amazing. You know, and of course, we're not talking about you've got the, your apple trees as well, your orchards. And so it's just a really beautiful place to just uh, take an afternoon and just switch off, isn't it? It's lovely. And you feel Thank the you. family vibe. And it's amazing that you, after, is it 27 harvests? Uh, 27 bitches, uh-huh. yes. You know, the winemaker, you know, by default, totally, totally part of the family as well. <laughs> you, yes. You're not allowed to leave, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, good answer. So, getting back to the wines, yes. talking about Pinot Noir, if somebody, you've already described beautifully the Elgin region, to the east, right on the coast, you've got Walker Bay, for instance, yes. which is another cool climate region, which will be doing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Like, is there big differences? between the two if somebody was wondering or even again other regions in Stellenbosch or if you wanted to compare your Pinot Noir and Chardonnay to the rest of the world what so, would you say? So what is interesting about the differences between us and the Yimala Arda Valley you know if we look at which is now closer to us you know um, what is interesting is there's a slightly more opulence in the wines from the Yimala Arda both on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir mm-hmm, okay and the tannin structure of Pinot Noir in the Himalaya Arda Valley is slightly more broader, whereas in, okay. in Elgin, the tannin structure is slightly more linear. So what we've got is this slightly more finer but more linear, linear structure to the Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. and there's a slight more opulence you know, in the wines from, from the Himalaya Arda. So that's, that's one of the ways that I recognize the, you know, what, the two, you know, mm-hmm. the two, you know, especially if in, in the blind tasting, you know, sort of Elgin, okay. you know, it, although, but, you know, and what is interesting is if you compare Pinot Noir from Elgin to, to the rest of the world, you know, if we, you know, what you get is, for instance, in Oregon, you get immense fruit intensity. Okay, mm-hmm. whereas there's a slight rusticity to, to the fruit profile in, in South African Pinot Noir, especially in Algen mm-hmm. and the Emunada. In Oregon or in the New Zealand, you'll get this massive bright fruit. Uh-huh. Yep. Whereas there's a slight more rusticity to the, to the fruit profile, um, slightly more leaner in, in, in character, but, but mm. at the end of the day, it's still beautifully balanced, you know, and slightly understated, I would say. Okay. No, I think that was a fantastic answer. Um, do you know what? I'm yes. going to pour myself some wine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to... So for everybody, 
the the wines that if you want something unbelievably special, it is the Seven Flags Chardonnay and the Seven Flags Pinot Noir. These are super special. They're about fifty pounds in the UK. They are not something you can just drink on a Monday night unless you're feeling a little extra frisky. Uh, but what I do have today, which I think is really nice for you to also just hear me tasting, is much more of the the weekly wines. So I've got a Village Chardonnay and I've got a Village Pinot Noir. So I'm going to pour myself now the Village Chardonnay 2022. But could you possibly talk about your, like, the seven flags for a second whilst I'm just having a little sip? How would you, how have you made something so spectacular? Obviously, I'm not tasting it today, but I can really vouch the the power, the concentration, the elegance, the the brightness of fruit, everything it was sensational. So how did that well, come about? So seven flags came about... Actually, you know, I, I referred earlier that we wanted to make a Bordeaux blend, you know, as our flagship mm. wine, you know, and that's what Seven Flags was designed for, you know, the label, everything. But when we started focusing on Pinot Noir, so, you know, in 2006 was the first release of, of Seven Flags. It was Pinot Noir and Chardonnay only followed in 2014. But Seven Flags is for us the ultimate expression of our terroir, you know, so it'll be yeah. from the best and a lot of the time also the oldest so it's it will be from the best vineyard sites we will mm-hmm. do a vineyard selection vinify those parcels separately and then do a barrel selection from the chardonnay it's from the oldest chardonnay vineyard on our property it's actually one of the oldest vineyards on our property it's also uh, one of the oldest vineyards in algen you know it's the oldest vineyard in the algen valley and also one of the oldest Chardonnay vineyards, which is now also part of the Old Vine project. Ah, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so that vineyard is now um, 36 years old, you know, mm-hmm. which is is young relative to, you know, if you compare to Burgundy or, you know, other places of the world. But what you have to remember is that the first Chardonnay was only planted in the, you know, the first official plantings of Chardonnay was only in the, in the beginning of the 1980s in South Africa. Um, oh, okay. And this vineyard was planted in 1987, so it is one of the oldest Chardonnay vineyards in South Africa. Mm, okay, um, brilliant. That's and, and for us, if I compare, you know, because you've mentioned village, um, and then we also have the estate. So we produce three yes. different Chardonnays and Pinot Noir. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, village estate and, and seven flats. And what is interesting is there's no difference in approach in the winemaking between the estate and seven flats. It's just literally the vineyard site that gives so much concentration and minerality, which makes the wine special. I have to say, it's nice actually, because this Chardonnay is really approachable. Super, super delicate touch of oak. There's yes. just like this slight hint of vanilla um, and even, but not even a toastiness, but there's just a slight, maybe uh, suggestion of nuttiness, but really it's just about lovely fresh fruit. Are you putting it in a little bit of oak? So the, the Vinar Chardonnay is actually a combination of large format oak. So it's foodress, mm-hmm. two and a half thousand mm-hmm. oh, liter yeah. vats. Yep. Um, yep. Then since the 2022 vintage, we've introduced concrete eggs. And then oh, lovely. Okay. old barrels. So there's no new oak involved in, in the winemaking there. So it's normally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's about uh, just over 40% of Fudra and the other, and then it, the rest is, I mean, or equal percentage will be more or less old barrels. And then the mm-hmm. rest will be split up between um, stainless steel and concrete eggs. You know, um, and the whole idea with 
with the village is that young vineyards tend to give you varietal character, you know, more than what they'll give you a sense of place. Yeah. For us, the village is about embracing that varietal character because the vines is just too young, you know, because we, so it's mostly young vineyards that ends up in those wines and mm-hmm. the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. So we, we want to embrace the varietal character. There is not yet that sort of sense of place. So it doesn't mean that it's a simple wine. It's actually a very nice and complex wine, but much more fruit driven, much more varietal yes. driven. And the idea is not to overcomplicate it with oak because the structure of the, you know, is just not going to handle it. Yeah. Well, what I like, it's it's bright. It's got obviously all of this lovely lemon character. I get a lot of melon, actually. Yes. Like a greener melon Winter on melon. the nose. Yes. Ooh, there we go. But then the palette's lovely, kind of like a nice, just crunchy green apple. And I do get on the finish, even you were mentioning about kind of the, the terroir and it's not showing up, but a little bit of maybe wet stones. It, it does. Something, no, that little mineral edge. Absolutely. Yes, and, then, and also, the, you know, it's amazing the contribution that you get from the concrete egg in that sense. Oh, well, now, okay, of, as a winemaker, talk to me, because I've been asking this question regularly, and I've already had in the last episode, actually, or last few episodes, uh, people explaining how it kind of naturally moves your wine. So it, it brings it up and it kind of stirs it slowly, so you do get this texture. So I think people are, are now starting to understand what concrete eggs can do. Do, yes. But, but, but do you have something to add to that? Because, yeah, well, I think winemaking, people are really getting behind this. When, when you say to people, you know, there's a constant movement in the egg, you know, you get this question, you know, what the hell is he smoking? Um, <laughs> kind of expression on the face. But my, the easiest way to explain it is actually you've got to look at the ocean, you know, and the influence of the moon on gravity of the ocean, you know, because we've got high tide and low tide, and that's basically due to the, the gravity, you know, from the moon. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens, you know, sort of any sediment or lees and wine, you know, will settle down with gravity. But now, because we've got variance in gravitational forces from the moon, what you have is that actually it stays in suspension. You've got this constant movement. So for us, you know, what is amazing to see is the textural element of a wine, you know, from eggs. And you get almost the same effect in, in food because I've got overall food risk, but it's not exactly, mm-hmm. it's not the same. But, mm-hmm. you know, you get so much more textural elements in the wine that gives the wine sort of, you know, just more texture to the wine. For us, I don't know if it's because it's, you know, concrete, you know, I find that I've got slightly higher salinity in the wine as well, um, yeah. which adds to, to the complexity of wine, you know, and, and I think eggs is a great tool. You know, I don't think they're going to ever replace, you know, small oak totally, but it does give the winemaker much more things to play around with and actually building blocks to build more complexity into the wines. Mm. And I actually have to say, I mean, everyone, just this wine, I'm sorry, everyone, I've called it village. How, you know, basic. Uh, what a basic bitch I am. Sorry, this is village. I love it. And um, we are talking about Burgundian varieties, are we not? So the village Chardonnay, this is 2022. In Waitrose, everybody, this one is so easy to get your hands on. It's 13.99. So, you know, again, this is a wine that you can drink during the week. But yes, it's a medium body wine, maybe yeah. even just slightly under. It's got brightness, it's got lightness, and it is just, like you said, it's not about that it's a simple wine, but it's actually got very nice, clean, for me, defined fruit flavors. Yes. 
So a mm. little bit of that kind of lovely melon, a little bit of crunchy green apple, and also freshly squeezed lemon. It's not lemon curd, it's not whatever, but the texture... As you just said, it just gives that nice little mouth coating on the tongue, but it's not, but it's not creamy at all. It's a bright, kind of lightish, uh, fresh. It's a really fresh Chardonnay. Yes, it's lovely. It's really beautiful to drink, isn't it? So, yeah. Mm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, can you walk me through? Because I am going to go over to the village, everyone. <laughs> village, Pinot <laughs> Noir, which is vintage twenty twenty. I have, but can you? Walk me through your winemaking process for Pinot Noir from harvest to bottling. Because let's be honest, Chardonnay is a little bit easier to deal with. Pinot Noir is a bit of a... Heartbreak grape. (laughs) It is the heartbreak (laughs) grape, absolutely. So yes, what do you do to make sure that you can preserve the delicate aromas and the flavours of Pinot Noir during your fermentation and ageing? Okay, obviously with Pinot Noir, it's harvest time is so crucial that you've got to be in the vineyards and make sure that you catch it on the right moment, you know, because mm. um, what you don't want with Pinot Noir is you don't want to overripe grapes and then you get that sort of strawberry compote kind of jammy notes. Yeah, um, jammy. Yeah. Which I think it just makes it more like a wine, not Pinot Noir, you know. Mm-hmm. So for us, we try to do is we try to have quite a long pre-maceration, cold maceration, and normally we, we have a cold maceration of five to seven days. And during that time, we actually don't have, we have punch downs, but very little. It's the only, the whole idea is just to keep the, the skin cake moist and keep it wet and make sure that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we don't get any, you know, nasty stuff starting to develop. And mostly the fermentation then starts spontaneous, you know, anything from day five to, to day seven. Okay. Then we'll, we'll start with more serious punch downs. Depending on the vintage, depending on the extraction level, you know, it's normally two or three punch downs in a day. Mm-hmm. Manual punch downs, you know. Um, so the workout, gym work session. Proper, yeah. Um, <laughs> on on vineyard selections for seven flags, we would sometimes have a percentage of, you know, maybe about 20% whole cluster, mm. which will be at the bottom of the tank. So we would... Oh, a bit of semi-carbonic? Correct, so, yeah. So we'll yep. put the mm-hmm. whole clusters at the bottom and then the, the rest of the grapes on the top. But that, you know, so for me, whole cluster ferment is really, really vintage dependent. You know, you've got to have okay. ripe stems. And I feel where it adds a spicy element to the wine, it's a positive the minute it adds a herbal effect to the wine it's a negative you know you don't want that green yes okay greenness from mm-hmm. the tannins from the stems you you know you want ripe stems would i say the reason that you wouldn't ever do a whole cluster in the village or in the estate is simply because you want the ripest fruit the best fruit and obviously it's the best fruit goes into the seven flags is that correct exactly is that exactly. the reason okay. that's the reason mm-hmm. and okay. also you know stems tend to i find if you taste wine that if you taste wine from the same vineyard that was one was partially fermented with stems and the other one was fermented everything destemmed, the wine where you fermented with stems is almost like two months slower in evolution. Okay. You know, so the evolution of the wine is much slower because obviously you've got more tannin. Um, mm-hmm. You need more time with that. Which is yeah. which is not a problem for seven flags, you know, because yes, I'm currently selling 2018, you know, a wine that's five years old. Whereas on Village, mm-hmm. we currently selling in South Africa 2022 already, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So with Village, you want much more approachable fruit early, 
you know, with seven flags and estate, you actually, I don't mind if it's, you know, sort of slightly more steer when it's young, but it adds to the complexity of it. Mm, okay. But then, so we basically, as far as possible, we run non-inoculated ferments. Um, if we see, you know, something's developing that I don't like, then, then I would inoculate um, to make sure that we have a complete fermentation because your your benefit from, from a wild ferment or non-inoculated ferment is anyway in the first half of the fermentation. Mm -hmm, okay. But 90% of the time, we don't need to add the yeast. You know, we just run uh, complete natural fermentation. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not a big fan of too long post-maturation on the skins with Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir tend to go brown. Yep. So I'd mm -hmm. rather keep that bright purple um, color of the wine. Mm -hmm. So normally, you know, within two days after the fermentation is finished, we'll press. Malolactic is normally in barrel. Okay, yep. Especially for your state and, and, and seven flags, village will be in either in large format oak or in, so that's 5,000 liter oak bats or in mm -hmm, stainless okay. steel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in terms of this specific village, has it seen, again, you said a lot of it will be in stainless steel or large, so, has it seen, yeah, how much time? No near oak. Um, so there's no near oak. So about 60% of the wine would have been in older barrels. You know, mm -hmm. all the small oak barrels, um, but now we're talking third, fourth, and fifth fall. So there's no oak influence, actually. And then also 5,000-liter oak vats as well. Well, I have to say this is really interesting because the color is very light. It's deceivingly light in a way, actually, for the concentration of fruit on the palate, which I think is lovely. And you already mentioned that you felt that maybe there's more of a rusticity or more of a... Did you did you say earthy or... I, said, this is, I, I did say rusticity. You're right. You know, there's earthy notes to the wine. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a mineral earthy note to the wine as well, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so I'm getting obviously all of the red fruits, but again, I'm getting more of this kind of the, the cranberries edge, um, maybe wild strawberries. Yes. So I'm feeling like, again, the, the, the going to that more herbaceous side of the fruit rather than uh, juicy, fresh fruit or overripe fruit and none of yes. that. But then there's this really nice, slight, earthy, almost slightly smoked toasty note but it doesn't feel like it's toast from from oak barrels it's no. almost going into that like even a suggestion of mushroom but it's really interesting because again this is i've looked this is in the website vinum you can get this for 14 pounds 30 or at fine wine direct if you're willing to get a case of six it's 77 pounds 70 dive in get six bottles you'll be you'll you'll be thanking me and that works out as 12 pounds 95 so what? this is again a really pinot noir the heartbreak grape is never it's hard to get cheap pinot noir it's not doesn't really exist because of how much work goes into it and this is actually it's it's quite it's very it's still very light bodied i feel like there isn't any weight or heaviness but the the concentration of different fruit flavors and earthiness that's going on i find it really interesting um and still has freshness as well yeah there's also gaminess to the wine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. you're so right you know what i said about that smoked toast note yes now i'm gonna steal your suggestion and it's even got a, maybe a layer of like overcooked bacon you know the bacon fat when it gets yeah. really slightly goes towards that burnt side yes. i'm taking that I've taken yours and mine and putting it together, together. and created a new <laughs> tasting note. There we go. Super. 
<laughs> yeah, but it's br- but great. That's really good value because Pinot Noir, it really is is hard. And actually, because it's going on the more savory side rather than the fruity side, I think that is exactly where Pinot Noir should be. So, so my question to you is: Is there anything that you think about in terms of balancing the expression of of the grapes' natural characteristics? You know, the red fruit, the slight earthiness, with your own stylistic choices when you're crafting Pinot Noir. I know you already said you don't want too much concentration of color because you don't want it to go too brown. That's one thing. Is there anything else that you personally well, are thinking about? Yeah. The thing is, people judge the wine always on color, you know, although I think mm-hmm. Pinot Noir should not be judged on color. Yes, I would like to see a little bit more dark, but still retaining the, the brightness of the fruit. You know, I'd like to see a little mm-hmm. bit more color in the wine, but that's on the village, we're working mostly with younger vineyards. It's vineyards that's not settled yet. So, um, yeah. because we want that primary fruit as well. And also, um, with young vineyards, you don't have the concentration. You're going to over extract young vineyards very quickly. You know, and when you do okay. that, you know, you're going to go from nice, bright and dark fruit to broody. And then you're going to get that sort of very compact kind of characters if you go over Right. Yeah. But mm. then, immediately you're going to lose a sense of place. You're never going to have a sense of place because then it's a – anybody can make wine from overripe grapes. You you lose the identity very quickly (laughs) and everything tastes the same. So for me, that's one thing that I'd like not to do in my wines. You know, I'd like my wines to have an identity. Um, And also, Mm -hmm. although this has been asked, you still want it to have a sense of place. Although the focus is much more on – primary fruits, you still want wine to have a sense of place. Yeah. From a winemaking and, and what I want, in, you know, when I worked at Chateau Margot, I actually was still a student and I took extended leave from university to spend six weeks there. And Yeah, we haven't talked about that. Yeah, yeah. this is so, good. Tell so, me about your time there. So I met Paul Poncelia actually um, through my father-in-law. Uh, I was still just dating my wife at the time and he said, Do you, would you like to meet Paul Poncelia? And I said, of course. And he said, like, you know, he came to visit the property, and this was in 1994, and I met him, and he said, if you want to come spend some time at Chattamogo, here's my business card, send me in. It was still in the days of faxes, you know, there was there was an email <laughs> What's yet. that? <laughs> there wasn't emails yet, you know, it was free. Why did it, why didn't you just Facebook him? Couldn't you send him a WhatsApp? No, there wasn't Facebook. <laughs> there wasn't <What>? WhatsApp. <laughs> You know, um, it was pre the internet, okay? mm-hmm. and now I'm giving my age away. But anyway, so I I then contacted him and he invited me to spend some time with him. And I remember just before I returned to South Africa, we were walking to a restaurant in the Entre de Mer, and I asked him and I said, "Listen, you know, I'm going to go back to finish my degree." What, in his mind, is the three most important things in winemaking? Mm, okay, I want to know this. What should I look right. for in wine? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. and walking in after a while, he said to me, I think the first thing is balance. Okay. And I think the second is balance. And I think... <laughs> is the third thing balance? And the third is balance. You know... Oh, I could have given you that. <laughs> and for me, it... It's actually when you've got a wine that's balanced, you're going to have a great mm-hmm. wine. You know, so yeah. whether it's the balance between the fruits and the structure, or between the fruits and the acidity and the sugar and the acidity, and balance for each style of wine is going to be different. And if you of can course. recognize that and you can find that balance, you're going to have a great wine. Um, Love that. So, so for me, when making wine, when I blend different components. 
I look at the balance, you know, and because a balanced wine will always outlast a wine that's a fruit bowl and which is not mm-hmm. balanced. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Okay. So yeah. I'd, I'd rather have a wine that's slightly understated but balanced. But when tasting that wine, you're always going to go and say, well, there's something else that I need to discover. I'm going to taste it again. I'm going to savor it. Whereas yeah, okay. if, it's, mm-hmm. if it's obvious, it's in your face, you're going to get bored with it very quickly. Mm. You're going to yeah, drink the wine, you're going to move to yeah. something else. Whereas if you've got a wine that's understated, that's balanced, that's elegant, you're going to taste that wine. And before you know it, you've actually ordered a second bottle. <laughs> and that's what I want. And it keeps the winery going. Exactly. <laughs> well, so it might be the really obvious answer to this question now, but what is your opinion on the importance of oak in aging uh, Pinot Noir and how do you approach it? I assume again, you're looking for balance, but I just wonder. I just wonder with Pinot Noir being a much more delicate grape than, as an example, you would have been in Chateau Margaux working with Bordeaux barrels, with Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, bigger, bolder varieties. So, how from everything you've learned in Chateau Margaux and the idea of balance, do you bring that to putting your what is like the seven flags yeah. that sees a lot more oak? What are you doing when you're thinking about that? So. Fortunately, I also worked in Burgundy, you know, and I've traveled to Burgundy. Ah, okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Ah, I worked in Alice Corton with a producer called Contenar. Okay. And then also, I lately, you know, I think the last time I was in Bordeaux was in 2004. Mm-hmm. The last time I was in Burgundy is 2019 prior to COVID, and hopefully I'll be, okay. I'll be there by the end of the year. Before the end of the year, I'll be definitely back in, in Burgundy. Fab. You know, I tend to go to Burgundy at least twice every three years. So okay. I go mm-hmm. to Burgundy a lot lately um, because that's where you believe that, you know. I think they know what they're doing. I think so. And they've been <laughs> doing it for quite a while. So A little while. But even in Burgundy, the amount of near oak varies from producer to producer and the need mm-hmm. to vineyard. You know? So I think that's firstly is key. But for me, as a young winemaker, 15, you know, <laughs> You know, 15, 20 years ago, at the time, you know, the early 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, more oak was always deemed better. If you look look at yeah. wines worldwide, you know, there was much more focus on oak. The the cooperages made a lot of money and it was sexy to have a wine that was oaked. You know, it was, it was you know, and also it was recognizable. <laughs> Then you actually yeah. had to wait quite a long time for the wine to show its true colors. But less is more, you know, in my opinion, on oaking. I basically, my estate, you know, these days is, is normally not much more than 20% new oak. Seven flags might be about 30% new oak, vintage mm-hmm. dependent. You know, um, and on Chardonnay, slightly more, about 25% yeah. new oak on, on, on Chardonnay. You know, I think a, yeah. l- a little bit of new oak is important because it gives freshness to the wine. You know, new oak has got more tannin components, which actually helps to, the, with the freshness of the wine and helps with longevity. But what you don't want is you don't want a wine that tastes like oak. A good friend of mine, winemaker um, okay. of Jordan yeah. Wines in, in Stellenbosch, Gary Jordan, always says he hates it when he has to be a carpenter before he can taste wine. And I think that is... A- <laughs> <laughs> that is important. You, know, um, you don't want oak to dominate. You want oak to support the wine. You know, you want actually oak to elevate the wine. And not, you know. And lately, yep. okay. you know, um, we work with 
On our Pinot Noir, we only work with blonde or very light toasted barrels. So Right, so you're not even going medium, so you're not even not going Not even going toasted. medium, yeah. So there, now the easiest way for a cooper to hide a bad oak is to give it a heavier toasting. Mm, the heavier okay. the toasting, the more faults you can hide because you're going to get this okay. toastiness in the wine and it's going to hide, you know, mistakes. And also, when using blonde or light toasted barrels, you have to be sure that the oak is, the wood has been seasoned properly before they make the barrel. Okay. So your your relationship with the cooper becomes very important. Okay, that's interesting. And that's yeah. also one of the reasons why I go to Burgundy quite often because, you know, when I go, I'd like to go and visit the coopers to make sure that it's a relationship you build with those guys. You know, yeah. I, might, mm-hmm. I might not be their biggest client, but I'd like to believe that I'm an important client, you know, and, I love and that. just, just going to visit them, you know, shows to them, I value their, their business, you know, and hopefully they value mine as well. Mm, um, of course. Yeah. And if you, what Coopers, just for people that are getting all geeky on wine barrels, what Coopers are you working with? We work mostly with a cover. Tremont, uh-huh. uh, Chassin, François Frère, and a, and a little bit of Mercury. So it's all Coopers. Oh, well, I, know, I know a lot about François Frère, so that one yes, I'm, I'm aware Frère, of. Yes, François Frère, I've been using them ever, ever, since the day I started. And for us, you know, it's they're all based in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. They all make barrels for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you know, yeah. and, and all of them, actually the Coopers also have visited me in South Africa. Ah, oh, that's nice. So there is a relationship. It's not the worst place. It's not the worst thing to have to come and visit you in Elgin. <laughs> I can absolutely say it's probably the best wine region I've ever visited. It really is. It's sensational you. that, you know, that you said the fauna, the flora, the nature, the quality of the wines, the cost of the wines. They're so affordable for what you're getting. The food scene is like something that people aren't talking about. And it's just absolutely brilliant you, <laughs> for me. Oh. The food scene in Cape Town, Stellenbosch, uh, you know, in the Western Cape where we live, is absolutely amazing. It's world class. Oh, it mm-hmm. is absolutely totally world class. Totally yes. is. You can go for what should be like a Michelin star meal in London that would set you back, say, £250. And here you'll have the same thing in South Africa for maybe £70. This Absolutely. is for the two people. You know, it's yeah. it's brilliant. I I did that a few times. It yeah. was wonderful. If you, if, you <laughs> add, if you add the wine pairing menu, it might be £100. Yeah, yeah, fair, absolutely fair enough. But, you know, it's true. You really can afford it. Now, Andres, I'm going to slowly uh, finish off with you. You've been fantastic explaining, you know, your story, Paul Kluver's story, and actually giving us some extra information on, on Pinot Noir and your decisions. But now I want to finish with a fun question, which is... If you could time travel to any wine drinking period in history, which era would you visit? And of course, why? Um, it's a difficult question, you know, because, you know, every time period <laughs> has got, you know, um, it's virtues. we have pre-war, we have post, you know, well, second yeah. war. But probably I would like to go to the 1800s, you know, sort of mid-1800s, okay. mm-hmm. because... You mean during phylloxera? <laughs> pre-phylloxera, actually. In yeah, Europe? pre-phylloxera. Okay, okay, so, okay, the early, early Eight, 1800s. In the 1800s okay. Because technology was really primitive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the people still made amazing wines, you know. And how? And how, mm-hmm. you know, I've had the privilege to taste wines from pre-1900 a few times. You know, okay, one was a port, one was a Madeira, and one was a still wine. Mm-hmm. 
And it is still amazing how those wines matured. And also, I mean, yes. technology was very primitive, but it shows me that the people knew the vineyard because they knew, if you look at, at the Cistercian monks making wine at Corrougeau in Burgundy for centuries. So for them, it was much more about their knowledge of vineyards and viticulture that actually made the wine than yeah. technology. So, you know, we... It would have been amazing. And that would yeah, have been... Just, that would, yeah, ask them. That would be amazing, yes. How did you figure out that this block was better than that? And I guess, you know, was it just literally time? Yes. Keep on tasting, yeah. keep on trying. And then, knows? Oh, well, what a good answer. And a lot, of, mm. a lot of winemaking, you know, because was also luck. You know, things happened. You know, yeah. how did they replicate that? You know, when they realized this is working better than that, you know, how did they replicate that sort of kind of things? Amazing. Lovely. I love that answer. And just, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Everyone go and buy some Paul Cleaver wines because they're delicious. And um, I'll be back for my for my hike at some point. You're more than welcome. More than welcome. Thank you. All the best. You are brilliant. Have a lovely day. Thank you and take care of yourself. Same to you. Okay. Thank See you. you soon. Bye-bye. So I hope you've all learned a little something extra and new about Pinot Noir. Because next week, I'm going to be hopping back across to Stellenbosch and I'm going to be talking with Kannenkopp, the winery that is known for Pinotage. Now, Pinotage is considered South Africa's signature grape variety. It was created back in 1925 by crossing Pinot Noir and Sanso, which was known at the time as Hermitage, hence the name. So you're going to want to join me next week where we're going to talk about the full history of this grape variety, where it's going. What does it really taste like? What foods is it good with? Can it age? Are there such a thing as Pinotage clones now? And I can promise you one thing, after next week's episode, you will be as much a believer in Pinotage as I am. Now to finish off, I have a wine quote for you. And I found one by, I think, a wine educator, perhaps, called Joel Fleischman. And he says, Great Pinot Noir is the most romantic of wines. With so voluptuous a perfume, so sweet an edge, and so powerful a punch that, like falling in love, they make the blood run hot and the soul wax embarrassingly poetic. (laughs) If that doesn't get you excited about Pinot Noir, I don't know what will. That is it for today, wine friends. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and looking forward to next week's. If you are enjoying these episodes, don't forget to like, share with your wine loving friends, leave a wonderful (laughs) comment on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify or whichever app you're listening to. Screenshot if you're listening on your phone and put it up on your socials. Share the wine love. Embrace the opportunities and challenges that come your way this week. Question that glass of wine you have. Dig a little deeper and find the story. And I'll see you all back here next Monday. Until then, cheers to you.